We are continuing our series in 1 Peter. Spending time in this wonderful book, learning about what it is to live as elect exiles. That's how Peter describes his readers. Really, it's a description of us as well. We are elect exiles. We are sojourners in this world. This world that, yes, has many blessings, many good things, but is a broken world, a world that has sin in it, and a world that is full of many ways of rebellion and is hostile to believers. We are sojourners in this world, but we are elect exiles. We are chosen of God. God has poured out His grace on us. He's active in our lives. We get to walk with Him. And so it's almost a something that's an oxymoron, it seems, or just there's tension there. We are elect exiles. and So we are learning from First Peter what it is to be elect exiles. We're continuing on. We are going to be in verses 13 through 16 today. And we've spent 12 verses, gone through 12 verses previously, where Peter has spoken of the wonder of our salvation, the goodness of God, the glory of God, and the privilege that we have to belong to Him, to be forgiven, to have this inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And to be, we learned last week, even with Christ at the center of the stage of redemptive history. So he spent all this time speaking of this. And now, today, he really starts to transition to what this means. How we live. Well, how does an elect exile live in light of these things? So we're going to read verses 13 to 16. But let's pray because uh, this isn't just a lecture. This isn't just looking at a book. This is God's holy word. This is the living God speaking to us through the foolishness, the weakness of a preacher. So let's go to him. We need his help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for who you are. You are wise and all-glorious and good. And your word is just wonderful. It conveys the infinite. It conveys who you are and your purposes and your call to us. We thank you for it. We need you, Lord. We want you. We ask you to come and be with us today. Speak to us. Lord, would you use me in however way you are pleased to use me to proclaim your word. Thank you, Lord. Uh, Only by the blood of Christ and his righteousness can I stand here and can we be here. So we look to you and we are expectant for how you're going to speak and how you'll work today. And we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Verses 13 through 16. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as He who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The Word of the Lord, 1 Peter 1, 13-16. This passage today, these four verses are are also key for us. Peter is making this connection between hope and the wonder of what God has done and, and the hope in our lives as we look forward to that, as we, 
as we fix our attention on those, the wonderful things of our salvation in Christ. He's making the connection from hope to holiness. And so he uses the word holy in here, and he goes on in the rest of 1 Peter to speak specifically about what holiness is. So these four verses really stand as a transition point and a connection point between hope and holiness. Really, the title of the message is A Hope That Makes Us Holy. This connection is really there throughout Scripture. The entirety of Scripture speaks or makes the same sort of connection between hope and holiness. It's oh so important for us to get this. We all have this tendency, and within Christendom there's this tendency to go to one side or the other of hope and holiness. There are individuals, and and I have gone through this as an individual, and there are whole movements that seem to either want to dwell on one side of that or the other. They want to speak about the hope that we have in Christ. They want to focus on on the wonder of forgiveness and grace and knowing God and all that, and that's good, but but they really don't want to get into holiness stuff. No, No, it's all about grace. It's all about our freedom in Christ. Let's not get into holiness stuff. That's legalism. And then there's the other side that perhaps says, well, we really are called to holiness. We really got to focus on holiness. We got to grind it out and get in the trenches and work on this thing. God's called us to holiness and don't don't let you know, don't misunderstand grace. It's all about holiness and what can happen sometimes is that becomes legalism. We forget about hope. Both of these perspectives are unbiblical. They are both uh, gross contradictions. They're abhorrent to God, actually. And contrary to Scripture. Scripture doesn't do it that way. Yes, indeed, Scripture celebrates hope and calls our attention to, to revel in hope. But Scripture equally calls us to vigorous pursuit of holiness. And they're not decoupled. They're together. One flows into the other. You can't really have one. You can't have holiness without hope. And that's what Peter does here. He, he does something masterful in this letter. He clearly instructs us, both implicitly and explicitly, in the Bible's way of holiness. The Bible's way of holiness. Biblical holiness is the inevitable result of firmly setting your hope on God. Realizing the wonder of your salvation being brought from Sin and its penalty and its brokenness to God. Remembering and recognizing the worth and worthiness of God and and delighting in the grace of God. It's the result of that hope. The command to holiness is built on the reality of what we already have in Christ. The indicative, which is a verb tense that speaks of how things are, what is already true, precedes the imperative, the command to do. Yet they go together. And so our hope, recognizing our hope, recognizing what we have and hoping in it, leads to the imperative. They can't go one without the other. They are connected together. We can't forget one without the other. There's a quote there from Samuel and He says, without the indicative of what God does, the imperative is addressed to a helpless sinner. 
the victim of his illusions. It becomes a commandment that crushes or that drives to vain and presumptuous efforts. So the, the indicative must follow, the must precede the imperative. The reality of what we have in Christ has to be there, but it doesn't just stop there. It flows into the imperative. It must do that. And that's what Peter's saying in this passage. That to put your hope, to set your hope fully on God, fully on the grace that is to be yours, is to inevitably lead a life of holiness. They go together. True resting in the wonders of salvation must result in true running after holiness. True resting in the wonders of salvation must result in true running after holiness. They go together. They're not a contradiction. One flows into the other. This is the truth of Scripture. So we're going to look at how Peter speaks of this here in these four verses. We're going to look about at how holiness is grounded in hope, how holiness is about growing in obedience, and holiness is being Godward, is Godward in orientation. So he starts out this section with a word in this verse 13. He says, therefore. You've probably heard that saying that whenever you see in Scripture, therefore, before a paragraph, you need to figure out what it's there for. And so there's a therefore here in this verse for a reason. The reason is, is Peter's been speaking for 12 verses about grace and salvation and what we have. He's been speaking about the wonder of our life in Christ, how we have this inheritance and how God keeps us. He's caused us to be born again. He keeps us. He refines us. He gives us joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. He says all these things and he talks about the wonder that we are, we are privileged recipients of what the prophets and angels long to look into. And then he says, therefore, after this breathtaking introduction, there's a therefore. The call to set our hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us the final revelation. We are to firmly invest ourselves in the expectation of this complete and full blessing of being with Jesus in His everlasting kingdom, enjoying forever His grace. We are to fully invest ourselves in that. We are to set our hope fully on this grace that we now have in parts and significantly, but ultimately when Christ returns, we'll have the whole package. We are to live with our hearts set on grace. Our hearts set on future grace, in particular Peter is speaking of. We are to hope in God and therefore be holy. It's interesting that this concept of hope and holiness, like I said, is throughout Scripture just this week. We were in care group and Alex Kirk pointed out to us uh, Psalm 78. And if you could put that up, John, or Brendan, whoever's back there, Psalm 78, the same connection is there. This is a psalm that is speaking of the story of God's actions. And it says in the beginning, He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which He commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, that the children yet unborn... Uh, that the, my, my wording's off. That the children yet unborn will arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. And that they should, be not, should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful. The psalmist is calling 
us to remember the story. And their story was not the complete story. They hadn't seen how Christ would come and fulfill it. But it was the story of their deliverance from slavery. And God instructed them to tell the story. Tell it to you children. Tell it over and over again. Why? That they should set their hope in God. To remember what God had done. Just like what Peter does. To remember what God had done so that they might set their hope in God. And what was to follow from that? What does the psalmist say? Set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. The same pattern. Hope leads to holiness. Hope in God. Setting your hope fully in God. And your life in God leads to holiness. Hope always precedes holiness. True holiness comes from hope comes from setting your hope fully on the grace of God. Peter informs us some more about what this hope looks like. He says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that we brought to you. So the way that we set our hope, the kind of the things that characterize setting our hope fully on the grace to be ours when Christ is revealed, the things that characterize it are preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. In the ESV, there's that word used twice. Minds. Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Actually, in the original language, uh, and in the King James has it this way. Anyone here have the King James? It says, gird up the loins of your mind. What does that mean? Gird up the loins of your mind. I'm I don't understand that. Well, in those days, uh, they, things were a little bit different. We don't gird up the loins of anything anymore unless you happen to be playing soccer in a dress or something and you need to gird up your loins. What girding up the loins was was back then, guys more or less wore dresses. And if you wanted to run or do anything, you had to pull your dress up and tuck it into your belt. That was what was girding up your loins. It was getting ready for action. And so Peter in his day, this was an expression that made sense. So the translators are, I think, right to say, preparing your minds for actions. Maybe a better translation for us is roll up your sleeves and get ready. So Peter calls us to this, to be mentally prepared, to be sober-minded, to have our minds be ready. He calls us to action. He calls us to preparedness. He wants us to think rightly about stuff. He wants us to understand things rightly. Because if you understand things rightly, this will allow you to set your hope fully, having your minds ready for action, being sober-minded, not clouded, but clear in your thinking, allows you to set your hope fully on the grace to be given to you. These things go together. Perhaps uh, an illustration might help. The Scottish evangelist, uh, preacher, and pastor, John McNeil, of the last century, early last century, liked to tell about an eagle that had been captured when it was quite young. The farmer who snared the bird put a restraint on it so it couldn't fly. And then he turned it loose to roam in the barnyard. It wasn't long till the eagle began to act like the chickens. 
scratching and pecking at the ground. This bird that had once soared high in the heavens seemed satisfied to live the barnyard life of the lowly hen. One day the farmer was visited by a shepherd who came down from the mountains where the eagles lived, and he saw the eagle, and the shepherd said to the farmer, What a shame to keep that bird hobbled up here in your barnyard. Why don't you let it go? So the farmer agreed. They cut off the restraint, but the eagle continued to wander around the barnyard, scratching and pecking as before. Finally, the shepherd picked it up and set it on a high stone wall. And for the first time in a long time, the eagle saw the grand expanse of the sky and the glowing sun, and it spread its wings and jumped and flew up into the sky and soared a spiral flight up and up. It was no longer acting like a chicken, but like an eagle. The eagle was, at the end of the story, eagle-minded, no longer chicken-minded. The eagle's perspective on things and on itself had everything to do with how it lived. And when it could no longer be bound by the life of a chicken and see, I'm an eagle, I'm meant for the sky, its, its mindset, however that worked for a bird brain, but its mindset changed its behavior. That's what Peter's talking about here. Our minds must be ready for action. We are to be sober-minded. We are to use our minds to think rightly. He wants his readers, and God wants us to be mentally sharp. You are what you think. You are what you think. And how you think about things will lead to how you Live. If you have the right outlook, you will be able to set your hope fully. Peter's Christianity, biblical Christianity, is not lazy, anti-intellectual Christianity. It's the Christianity that, that is of the mind. Yes, of the heart and these other things as well, but of the mind where we think truthfully. And the reality is that all of life is about the mind. You're always thinking something. And your thoughts and perceptions have everything to do with how you live. You are what you think. And we must, as believers, have our minds soak in the truth of God. Our minds must soak in 1 Peter 1-12. through We need them to soak in that. That's why we do Scripture memory. And I just want to highly recommend, if you don't memorize Scripture, do it. Not, not because... It's some drill you must do. And your Sunday school teacher back 30 years ago said to do it. No, because when you memorize Scripture, you're providing stuff for your mind to soak in. You're allowing your mind to think rightly. You're influencing your mind. You're soaking your mind. You're meditating on these things. And you're allowing yourself to have your minds ready for action, to be sober-minded, and therefore set your hope fully. We all look at that and say, I want to do that. Every believer has the desire to be holy. I know that's true. If you are a believer, if you've turned from your sin, place your faith in Christ. The Spirit of God is in you. And He's given you this yearning to be holy. So we all want to be like Jesus. We all want to love God with all our being. We want to love one another. And we want to set our hope fully. We look at that, yes, I want a hope. How do you get there? Well, 
You get there in part by soaking your mind in the truth of God. Soaking your mind in verses 1 through 12, allowing it to change your perspective on life because you are what you think. So Peter calls us to, the, to this. He calls us to be brainwashed by the gospel, by the truth of the gospel and all that comes with it. As Christians, we are called to be brainwashed by the gospel truth. Now, we don't like that word brainwashed, right? Because it's attached to cults and and stuff, but the reality is we all wash our brain in something. It's just a question of what you wash your brain in. That's all it is. What are you going to wash your brain in? Are you going to wash it in the gospel, in the gospel truth, or are you going to wash it in something else? It's getting washed in something, believe me. Everybody's brain is. We are to wash our brains in the truth of God so that we can be ready for action, so that we can be sober-minded, so that we can prevent from being intoxicated by other things, to think clearly, to see clearly. So a question, some questions with this. Is there some way that we are distracted from thinking clearly and according to the Gospel? Is there some way that we are fuzzy-minded? Is there something that is pulling us away from having our minds filled and focused on the Gospel? Is there something else our brain is soaking in? Is there something else that's pulling us away? What alternative way of thinking most influences you? Now, all of us have an answer to this. I'm not saying like, well, if you're in this category and then there's the elite over here who always think right. No, it's never like that. We all, from time to time, sometimes minute by minute throughout the day, find our brains soaking in something that they shouldn't be. What is that thing for you? What thing contrary to the Gospel? And what does that thing, what are those things, what do they say to you? What promises do they make? What do they promise you? Think about this. Invest yourself in this and you'll get so-and-so. This will happen. We always live that way. We are always thinking, we're always living for promises. We're always investing our hearts. We're always setting our hope somewhere. So that other way of thinking, what is it promising you? What is it saying it's going to deliver to you? Ultimately, it cannot deliver. Even if it's a good thing, in and of itself, it cannot consistently deliver the thing it says to you. Only God will fully and finally deliver His promises. So how can you resist that pull? Who can you tell about what your brain is soaking in? We should all have somebody who knows us well enough to know the alternative things our brain soaks in. Some that we trust, we can talk to. Who is that person? And how can you, with that help of that person, together with others, replace the way of thinking so that verses 1-12 through and the Gospel way of thinking fill your mind instead? We are to think clearly. We are to be ready for action. Our minds are to be Gospel-focused and sober so that we can set our hope fully on the grace to be given us. Next, Next section, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. We are called to be growing in obedience. It's interesting, Peter calls us obedient children. Another way to translate that might be sons and daughters implied of obedience. As, as those belonging to God, we are now obedient children. Peter calls us as obedient children not to be conformed 
to the passions of our, of our former ignorance. He assumes his identity for his readers, that they are obedient children. And if you are a believer, this is your identity. We learned earlier in 1 Peter that we have been born again of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God lives in us. And there's this desire to obey God. There is something working in us that's different than before. We are truly superhuman because the infinite, eternal God dwells in us. We're, we're better than anything on TV. We're better than Superman. We're better than Batman and Spider-Man. We're better than the heroes. We're better than the X-Men. And I enjoy some of that stuff. There's that recent series, The Heroes. I don't know if anyone's caught that. And in the series, uh, there are these people, uh, and I'm not necessarily recommending it one way or the other. I've only seen the trailer. There's these people who are uh, normal people who suddenly find themselves with these supernatural or these superhuman powers, and it's all about how they work it out, and there's all these, all these adventures and soap opera-like situations. Now that's kind of a new genre. You mix soap opera and adventure together. 24 is like that, too. So anyhow, they do all this stuff. Well, that's just fiction. It's just made up. Christianity isn't fiction. The Spirit of God is in you. You have this wonderful salvation, this wonderful inheritance. The living God dwells in you. And now there's this drive to be obedient, to obey God, to be like Him, to love God, and to love others. We are now sons and daughters of obedience. No longer sons and daughters of darkness and disobedience, but saved from our sins to love God, to live for Him. This is who we are. It's our identity. And that's part of how we live in holiness. This salvation, this, this, this salvation we put our hope in is also our current experience. It's our identity. It's who we are. We are sons and daughters of obedience. We're purchased from our sin to God to obey Him, to love Him. And so holiness is living according to who we really are and what our, really, our call really is. To live for God and to, to live outside of holiness is to live contrary to our very identity. He's come to die on the cross to deal with sin's penalty, to pay for our, the guilt and the just penalty of our sins, but He's also come to break the power of sin over our lives. That the Spirit might be in us, that we might be sons and daughters of obedience. We are called to live a life as obedient children because of who we are, because of our new nature. And one day that will be completed. That's good news. Isn't it? If you are a believer, I know that's in your heart. And isn't it good news to know that He has done that? He's at work in you to live this way? We are to be growing in obedience and then Peter says, uh, do not be conformed any longer. Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Peter calls us not to be conformed. We're as obedient children, not to be conformed to the passions of our former ignorance. Is that an interesting phrase? The passions of our former ignorance? Any ideas, any thoughts on what that might be? Passions 